what does the Statue of Liberty stand for? I don't know what. It can't sit down! <laughs> it's time for the Children's Hour! Kids Public Radio! That was Why Can't We Be Friends by War. You're listening to the Children's Hour. I'm Katie Stone. And today on the show, we're taking a step back in time. Over 80 years, in fact. We're learning about World War II today, one of the biggest conflicts in human history, which changed modern humanity forever. World War II started September 1, 1939, when Germany, under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, invaded Poland. It lasted six years, until September 2, 1945. You'll learn more about World War II today from the research of Ms. Teresa Rand Bridges' bilingual fifth-grade class at Alvarado Elementary, a public school in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The music we play is either from that era or is about World War II. If you ask experts or historians when or how did World War II start, well, people are still debating that almost a hundred years later. But what we all know for sure is that World War II was one of just two periods in history where every continent on the planet was involved in the same conflict forming two major teams. 
the Allied power and the Axis powers. Around 56 million people died in World War II. I don't know about you, but that number can be hard for me to wrap my mind around. It's more deaths than any other war in history. And there's a lot to learn about how that tragedy unfolded. Here's Anakin Madrid from Alvarado Elementary. There were two sides in World War II, the Allied and the Axis powers. The Allied powers were the United States of America, led by Franklin D. Roosevelt, Great Britain led by Winston Churchill, and Soviet Union led by Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin. The Axis powers were Germany, Italy, and Japan. After World War I, Germany had lost, and they did not accept it. In the 1930s in Germany, a new political party came to power. They called themselves the Nazis, and their vision for the world was harsh and cruel, where society was divided by people's identities. They thought that some people were better than others just because of their religion or hair color or who they loved. A lot of innocent people were persecuted just for who they were. Many families were taken from their homes and placed in concentration camps, including the young Anne Frank. Anne Frank was born to a Jewish family in Frankfurt, Germany on June 12, 1929. Judaism is a religion that believes in one God. Jewish people follow that religion. Anne's family tried to live a normal life in Frankfurt, but the conditions were getting worse for Jews because Hitler had his distinction between Aryan people and Jewish people, which is false. The Franks later moved to Amsterdam, Netherlands. Anne was only four when they moved. In Amsterdam, she lived a normal life with her family. For Anne's 13th birthday, she got a blank diary. The Nazis, a group Hitler led, later invaded Amsterdam. Lots of Jews left from Amsterdam, but the Franks went into hiding. Anne hid with two other families, and of course, her family. Their secret house was hidden behind a bookshelf. Anne was only 13 when she went into hiding. Anne wrote in her diary, my greatest wish is to be a journalist and later on a famous writer. Anne loved to write about the way she felt, especially during the hard months of hiding. One unusual morning, the Franks were discovered. Most of the family got sent to concentration camps. Anne and Margot, Anne's sister, got sent to Bergen-Belsen, a concentration camp in Germany. Sadly, Anne and Margot got very ill with typhus. Margot died, and shortly after, Anne died at the age of 15. Otto Frank, Anne's dad, was the only survivor from the families who lived in the secret annex. Otto returned to the secret annex in hopes that his family would be there. Instead, he found Anne's diary and had it published in 1947. Now it's in bookstores and has been read around the world. Anne did fulfill her dream of being a writer. It's a great book, you should read it.
I call you, I'll come when you call me. I'll call you at half past one. One's for the pretty little baby that's born, born, born and gone away. Oh, will you come when I call you? I'll come when you call me. I'll call you at half past two. Two's for the love of me and you. One's for the pretty little baby that's born, born, born and gone away. Oh, will you come when I call you? I'll come when you call me. I'll call you at half past three. Three's for these warships at sea. Two's for the love of me and you. One's for the pretty little baby that's born, born, born and gone away. Oh, will you come when I call you? I'll come when you call me. I'll call you at half past four. Four's for the guns of this war. Three's for these warships at sea. Two's for the love of me and you. One's for the pretty little baby that's born, born, born and gone away. Oh, will you come when I call you? I'll come when you call me. I'll call you at half past five. Five's for the warplanes that fly. Four's for the guns of this war. Three's for these warships at sea. Two's for the love of me and you. One's for the pretty little baby that's born, born, born and gone away. Will you come when I call you? I'll come when you call me. I'll call you at half past six. Six for the cities all wrecked. Five for the warplanes that fly. Four's for the guns of this war. Three's for these warships at sea. Two's for the love of me and you. One's for the pretty little baby that's born, born, born and gone away. Oh, will you come when I call you? I'll come when you call me. I'll call you at half past seven. Seven for the continents blowed up. Six for the cities all wrecked. Five for the warplanes that fly. Four's for the guns of this war. Three's for these warships at sea. Two's for the love of me and you. One's for the pretty little baby that's born, born, born and gone away. Call you, I'll come when you call me. I'll call you at half past eight. Eight for my eight billion brave. Seven for the continents blowed up. Six for the cities all wrecked. Five for the warplanes that fly. Four's for the guns of this war. Three's for these warships at sea. Two's for the love of me and you. One's for the pretty little baby that's born, born, born and gone away. I'll call you at half past nine. Nine for the crippled and blind. Eight for my eight billion graves. Seven for the continents blowed up. Six for the cities all wrecked. Five for the warplanes that fly. Four's for the guns of this war. Three's for these warships at sea. Two's for the love of me and you. One's for the pretty little baby that's born, born, born and gone away. Oh, will you? When I call you, I'll come when you call me. 
I'll call you at half past ten Ten for the atom bomb loose again Nine for the crippled and blind Eight for my eight billion graves Seven for the continents blowed up Six for the cities all wrecked Five for the warplanes that fly Four's for the guns of this war Three's for these warships at sea Two's for the love of me and you One's for the pretty little baby That's born, born, born and gone away that was the Woody Guthrie tune, Come When I Call You, done by the Klezmatics off of Wonder Wheel. We just heard a little bit about Anne Frank's life. She's one of six million Jewish people who were murdered by the Nazis. That effort to rid the world of Jewish people is called the Holocaust. And in addition to Jewish people, other groups were targeted too, like people of color, disabled people, and the LGBT communities. That forced a lot of people to try to escape to other countries, like Anne Frank's family, who were helped by strangers. But sometimes, finding refuge was more challenging. From the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., we have the story of one friendship across the Atlantic Ocean that saved a family's life. My dear Jane, you cannot imagine how happy I was when I got your letter. It showed me that I really have some real friends who think on me also in bad times. Marianne Winter, a teenager in Vienna, was writing to her pen pal, Jane Bomberger, who lived in the United States. I am sure you follow the papers. Facts are that we have to emigrate under every circumstances. Jews like Marianne and her family were suddenly encountering daily harassment and persecution. Nazi Germany had annexed Marianne's home country earlier that year. The move was overwhelmingly popular with the majority of the Austrian people. Thousands gathered in the streets to welcome the unopposed arrival of Hitler and the German army. While many cheered, Jews were subjected to numerous restrictions on daily life and to public humiliation. In one such incident, Marianne and her mother were stopped in the street and forced to scrub the floor of a barracks. Faced with increasing persecution, the Winter family was desperate to escape. Jane Bomberger lived in Pennsylvania, where her father worked as a builder. Jane had never met Marianne in person. She picked Marianne's name randomly from a list at a campfire girls' meeting. By the time Marianne asked for help getting out of Europe, the pen pals had exchanged letters for three years, sharing details about their lives and families. Now I ask you, my dear, if it would be possible for you to get a connection with any rich man who would be able to give us an affidavit. Of course, I know that you and your family have not the money to claim for us, but it is sad to say that we have no one in USA. Fleeing the Nazis and getting into the United States was far from easy. Most immigrants had to get an affidavit of financial support from an American sponsor, plus many different documents. One missing or expired document could mean starting the process all over again. Nearly 140,000 people in Germany and Austria were on the waiting list to receive U.S. visas. Despite these challenges, and although the two families had never met, the Bombergers agreed to sponsor the Winters. My dear, dearest Jane, you cannot imagine how we felt after having received your letter an hour ago. 
We could not believe that there are such people who really are so kind and to help us. In August 1938, their situation became unbearable, and the Winters fled Vienna to live with relatives in Prague, Czechoslovakia. There, the U.S. consulate initially denied their visa application because Joseph Bomberger's affidavit of support listed the Winter family as friends instead of relatives. Fearing the Nazis would invade Czechoslovakia, Marianne's father, Max, wrote to Joseph Bomberger for additional help. Without hesitation, Joseph sent more income statements to prove he could support the Winters financially. I thank you again and again for everything you are doing just now for us and what you did the whole time. After reviewing the new documents, the U.S. consulate in Prague finally issued their immigration visas. The winters set sail from Italy on January 6, 1939, on the SS Conte di Savoia. After a long voyage, they were greeted by Jane and her father upon their arrival in New York City. The family stayed at the Bombergers' home for a brief time before moving to a nearby apartment. Marianne's family sought to help other refugees, but leaving Nazi-occupied territory became increasingly difficult, especially after the war began later that year. Children's Hour is produced by the Children's Hour Incorporated, an educational nonprofit based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We're listener supported at childrenshour.org. Electric Playhouse in Albuquerque, New Mexico is a proud supporter of the Children's Hour. Find your play at Electric Playhouse. It's fun for kids and adults who want to play like a kid again. Featuring 16 interactive spaces with constantly rotating games with a full restaurant, you can play and dine at Electric Playhouse. Tickets at electricplayhouse.com. The Children's Hour is supported by the New Mexico Humanities Council. Since 1972, NMHC has sought to engage New Mexicans with history, culture, and diverse humanities topics. 
Many thanks to the County of Bernalillo, New Mexico for their support of our Learn Along guides that meet and cite national education standards. You can find them all at childrenshour.org. Thanks, Bernalillo County. Welcome back to the Children's Hour. Today on the show, we're learning about World War II. Before the break, Somewhere Over the Rainbow was sung by Ingrid Michaelson, which originally appeared in the hit movie The Wizard of Oz, released in 1939, just before the start of World War II. And in any war, countries put a lot of work into getting and transmitting information that could help their side win. From using spies to secret codes, there's so much to know about how the U.S. and its allies used information to fight the war. Why were spies so important? Because they got important information from the Axis and Allied powers. They found out where they were going to put bombs and how to break their codes. Spies also helped the U.S. avoiding major attacks. The U.S. cracked the German code, but the Axis powers never cracked the U.S. code. The Germans used a cryptography machine called the Enigma. In contrast, the U.S. developed a code from the Navajo language. The U.S. was able to capture an Enigma machine and figure it out, but Germany and Japan never figured out the Navajo code. Navajo code talkers were U.S. Marines that made and used codes to keep secrets. In 1942, Philip Johnstone had an idea. His idea was that he could base codes on indigenous languages, so he picked the Navajo language. When the Navajo men were trained at boot camp, they called them code talkers or wind talkers. Code talkers went to different islands for battle. Code talkers also helped U.S. forces coordinate during battle. They called airplanes hummingbirds and submarines big whales. President George Bush gave an award to the Navajo code talkers for their help. He was born and grew up on Navajo land, a child of the mesas and canyons so grand. The Holy Ones looked upon him with care. Nature provided him warmth, water, and air. Co-talker, you were chosen as a warrior. Co-talker, for you there was no barrier. Co-talker, you are like Manuelito. Co-talker, victory was your only motto. He was at school one day when he heard they needed him. He devoured every word. 
He answered the call without hesitation. He left school to help the whole nation. Co-talker, you were chosen as a warrior. Co-talker, for you, there was no barrier. Co-talker, you are like Chief Manuelito. Co-talker, victory was your only motto. He sailed west, the route changing women took, to rouse the enemy out of every cranny and nook. His sacred language, short and deadly strife, the baffled enemy had to run for his life. Co-talker, your country knows of your service. Co-talker, your objective was not of Everest. Co-talker, though you are called a nation's hero, you chose to be humble, but you're still a hero. That's Red Milla Cody with Code Talkers. You're listening to the Children's Hour, and we're learning about World War II with Miss Rand Bridges' bilingual fifth graders at Alvarado Elementary School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The attack on Pearl Harbor happened December 7, 1941. It was a well-planned surprise attack by Japan. The person who led it was the Vice Admiral of the Japanese Navy. The U.S. military didn't respond to Pearl Harbor's call for help until the next day. This attack was a total surprise for the U.S. The Japanese sent spies to Pearl Harbor to know when was the right time to attack. The day of the attack, a soldier named Joseph detected a swarm of aircraft in the air, 130 miles away. This could have prevented the attack on Pearl Harbor, but they thought they were American planes flying in from the mainland. Little did they know it was the Japanese. Days after the attack, Germany and Italy declared war on the U.S. This led to the U.S. joining World War II. German and Italian citizens living in the United States were held as political prisoners during World War II, but after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the U.S. rounded up 120,000 people of Japanese descent and put them into internment camps, including four here in New Mexico. 
Nearly two-thirds of them were American citizens. Years later, the U.S. government would apologize and pay reparations to the people who had been held in the camps. But it took decades for that to happen. Robin Amer and Jesse C. from Vocalo Media have more. Chie Tomohiro and Sam Ozaki were both interned during World War II. They were teenagers in the early 40s. Both lived on the West Coast. Chie was from Portland. Sam was from California. Both of their fathers were fairly successful businessmen, active in the Japanese community. Both Chie and Sam described their fathers as community leaders. They were leading successful, stable lives, the kind of lives their families had come to America hoping to achieve, until Pearl Harbor. Suddenly, they weren't model citizens anymore. They were the enemy. Here's Chie describing what happened. The FBI had uh, selected certain people that they considered leaders in the community. Right on the day of Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, my father was picked up by the FBI. The FBI came in, ransacked her house, took, you know, went through all the drawers and everything. And, you know, I had a U.S. savings bond, a $25 U.S. savings bond. They even took that. Uh, there was something going on at the church, and my mother and I were out. We were so naive. Can you believe this? We thought that since my father was very fluent in English, that he was taken to help interpret, you know, be a translator. We were so naive, that's what we thought. Well, when we found him in the Multnomah County Jail, you know, locked up like an ordinary prisoner, then we knew he was, you know, not there to help. <laughs> they were treated like uh, prisoners of war. He didn't return until it was April of 1944. So he was separated from you and your mother for three years? Yeah. My father had lived in this country f since 1903, and because of the law saying that no Asians can become naturalized citizens, he did not have citizenship. And so when the war came, he automatically became an enemy alien. The FBI thought that by taking the leaders of the community out and away, that we would be helpless. We wouldn't be committing sabotage or whatever. I don't know what they thought we were going to do. They thought they were taking the dangerous people out of the community. It was a similar story for Sam's father. He was sent to a camp in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We would not see him for possibly a good year, maybe a year and a half. We, you know, never dreamed under the circumstances that we would have to be evacuated and interned. And especially since we were born and raised in this country and we had citizenship, we thought that the Constitution was going to protect us. And uh, it's very interesting, the notices that were pinned up on the telephone poles and on the walls of buildings ordering us to report, you know, to the assembly center, it said, to all people of Japanese ancestry, aliens and non-aliens. They didn't want to say citizen. They knew they were doing something that was unconstitutional. They did not have the facilities to house 120,000 persons right away. So what they did, they 
took over racetracks, fairgrounds, places where they had some kind of facility where they could house temporarily 120,000 persons. I was one month away from graduating high school uh, when we were ordered to the Assembly Center, which was the Pacific International Livestock Exposition Grounds. That was a very horrible place. It was one huge barn, and we were all forced to live in the uh, areas where the animals were displayed. They treated the horses better than they treated us because these racehorses are very valuable pieces of property. It's nice to visit a horse stable on occasion for a few minutes, but when you have to live in a stable and you, you smell the horses all the time, that's not so pleasant. I think that the lack of privacy... The total lack of privacy... ...was the worst thing for everyone. The only way anybody could get any privacy was hanging the army blankets that we were given. There was only a wall, not a wall, but a barrier, I would call it, between the families. And so the whole barn can hear you if you had a family quarrel or anything like that. We were in the Santa Anita racetrack for approximately six months. And that gave the government time to build a more permanent type concentration camp. They called it relocation center. I call it a euphemism when they call it a relocation center. But we were given numbers on the tags. Um, from there on in, we were in numbers. We uh, were first told to stuff these ticks with straw, which were our mattresses for our army cots, and uh, we were assigned a 20 by 24 room. They called it apartments, but they were rooms uh, for each family. I happened to be lucky because I was an only child. Uh, our next door neighbor, uh, there were four kids and mother and father in one 20 by 24 room. In our case, uh, my two sisters, my mother had a very small unit maybe 20 by 15 or something like that. There was no furniture in the room. The only thing that we had was a pot belly stove. And I worked as a lumberjack cutting down trees and cutting the uh, branches into smaller pieces so they could be used to burn in the pot belly stoves. That was the only warmth we had uh, during the winter. Actually, there were no chairs, no benches, nothing. No closet, of course. No place to hang your clothes. Uh, after a while... You know, we found lumber and empty boxes and brought them in to sit on. And there were some people who were very handy, and they created cupboards and and desks and things like that. But I had no skills, and there was no real lumber to build these things. That piece originally aired on Vocalo 89.9 FM, Chicago Public Media. He said my name is Nakashima I am a proud American I came here in 27 From my homeland of Japan And I picked your grapes and oranges Saved some money, bought a store Until 1942 Pearl Harbor and the war Came the relocation 
vacation orders They took our house, the store, the car And they drove us through the desert To a place called Manzanar A Spanish word for apple orchards Though we saw no apple trees Just the rows of prison barracks With barbed wire boundaries And we dream of apple blossoms Waving free beneath the stars Desert, the prisoners of Manzanar, Manzanar. Blossoms waving free beneath the stars till we'd wake up in the desert, still prisoners of Manzanar, Manzanar, fifty years of all but vanished. Now I am an old man And I don't regret the day That I came here from Japan But on less winter nights I often wish upon a star That I'd forget the same sorrow that I felt at Montanar Where we dream of apple blossoms waving free beneath the stars You're listening to the Children's Hour, Kids Public Radio. We'll be right back. United Way of North Central New Mexico supports the Children's Hour. Outpost Performance Space in Albuquerque, New Mexico is a proud supporter of the Children's Hour. The Children's Hour is supported in part by an award from New Mexico Arts, a division of the New Mexico Department of Cultural Affairs, and the National Endowment for the Arts. 
Support for the Children's Hour is also provided by the City of Albuquerque's Cultural Services Department and the Urban Enhancement Trust Fund. Token Ibis is a supporter of the Children's Hour. At Token Ibis, they know that philanthropy doesn't need more money, it needs more people. Users can direct Token Ibis money towards their favorite New Mexico nonprofits. Learn more and sign up at tokenibis.org. Welcome back to the Children's Hour. Before the break, that was Manzanar by Tom Paxton and Ann Hills off of Under American Skies. And that word Manzanar refers to the Manzanar War Relocation Center in California. It was one of 10 American internment camps set up between March 1942 and November 1945. Today on the show, we're learning about World War II with Ms. Rand Bridges' fifth grade bilingual students at Alvarado Elementary in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Japan went to war because they needed resources. Their military traditions were very different and included surprise attacks and self-sacrifice. In World War I, Japan was on the winning side but felt cheated because they had so few resources. Japan attacked China because China had so much raw materials. 2,500 Japanese kamikaze soldiers sacrificed themselves by diving their planes into battleships. They thought they were honoring themselves to their ancestors. As an island nation, Japan had a very strong navy. They thought they could intimidate their enemies with big ships, surprise and kamikaze attacks, and strategic advantages, but the Allies were eventually able to defeat them. Battleships and aircraft carriers served an important role in the Asian theater in World War II. The Japanese had the advantage at first because they had well-built battleships. They were made so big because Captain Kikuo Fujimoto believed that if you had a big ship and big guns, you would intimidate the other ships. On the other hand, the U.S. battleships were small because of the Panama Canal restrictions they had. It also meant that the U.S. battleships didn't have very thick armor. Once the war was underway, the U.S. decided to focus on making aircraft carriers to hold planes. The U.S. made so many aircraft carriers, like the Yorktown, that because of them, they ended up winning the war. The U.S.'s superior navy, especially battleships and aircraft carriers, was what helped us win the war. The Battle of Midway was an important event because it ended the threat of Japan invading the Pacific Ocean. The Midway Islands were in the very center of the Pacific Ocean and the U.S. owned this territory. In May 1942, the Japanese were getting ready for a naval showdown with the smaller U.S. Pacific Fleet. On June 3rd, Japan invaded Midway Island. Then the U.S. sent out their plane carriers and destroyed Japan's bomb carriers. Admiral Yamaguchi responded to his burning ships by sending more planes to attack U.S. ships. They seriously damaged one of the U.S. best aircraft carriers, the U.S.'s Yorktown. On June 5, 1942, some of the U.S. sailors on the Yorktown began an unsuccessful salvage operation. More of the Japanese destroyers sank, and eventually the Japanese did not have enough planes to protect their ships. 
Both sides had many casualties, including the Yorktown aircraft carrier. But the Battle of Midway was a victory for the U.S. and was a turning point for the Allied forces in the Asian threat. The Air Force is one of the most unique parts of the military. Planes were used in World War II to carry troops and materials. Since planes were new, they were very difficult to fly. The Air Force was founded after the war on February 18, 1947, and it shares the same birthday as the CIA. That shows how important the Air Force is. There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover tomorrow. Just you wait and see. There'll be love and laughter and peace ever after tomorrow. When the world is free The shepherd will tend his sheep The valley will bloom again And Jimmy will go to sleep In his own little room again There'll be blue over the white cliffs of Dover tomorrow just you wait and see that was Rosemary Clooney with the white cliffs of Dover we're learning about World War II today from a bilingual classroom at Alvarado Elementary School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. These are fifth graders, and they studied World War II to create this program for the Children's Hour. Las mujeres ayudaron demasiado en la Segunda Guerra Mundial. Women helped a lot during World War II. Las mujeres en la Segunda Guerra Mundial trabajaron en fábricas como los hombres trabajaban. Además, hicieron jardines de la victoria. The women in World War II worked in factories to replace the men and created victory gardens to save money. Estas esfuerzas eran la manera principal en que las mujeres ayudaron. This is the main way women served their country. Las mujeres sirvieron en uniforme a su país. Las mujeres trabajaron en las Fuerzas Armadas como enfermera, administradoras y repararon aviones. The women also worked in the armed forces as nurses and administrators, and they fixed planes. Todos no creían que las mujeres tuvieran un papel muy importante en la guerra. Después, el general Eisenhower sintió que no podía ganar la guerra sin las mujeres. Not everyone believed that women played a very important role in the war. Afterwards, General Eisenhower claimed that we could not have won the war without women. Thank you. 
holiday long where the rain or shine. She's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory. Rosie, the riveter, keeps a sharp lookout for sabotage. Sitting up there on the fuselage, that little frail can do more than a male can do. Rosie, the riveter. Rosie's got a boyfriend, Charlie. Charlie, he's a marine. Rosie is protecting Charlie, working overtime on the riveting machine. When they gave her a production knee, she was as proud as a girl could be. There's something true about red, white, and blue about Rosie, the riveter. That was Rosie the Riveter by Four Vagabonds. That song was inspired by Rosalind P. Walter, a young volunteer during the war. She was 19 when she started helping to put fighter planes together at the Vought Aircraft Company in Stratford, Connecticut. After reading newspaper articles about her, songwriters Red Evans and John Jacob Loeb wrote the song Rosie the Riveter. The Rosie character quickly became a pop culture sensation. Perhaps you've seen her poster bearing her slogan, We Can Do It. We've posted it at childrenshour.org. Look for this episode, World War II. You've been listening to the Children's Hour, and today we've been learning about World War II with Therese Rand Bridges' fifth grade class at Alvarado Elementary School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We want to thank these bilingual fifth graders for presenting a show for us today. You can find a complete list of participants and links at childrenshour.org, along with a lot of photos. We've got one more segment for you today on the end of World War II. Stick with us. You're listening to the Children's Hour. In World War II, scientists developed the atomic bomb. How did they make it? They made it with uranium-235. Uranium-235 is a deadly material that was put in the atomic bomb in order to make it powerful and deadly. They didn't drop one atomic bomb. They dropped two atomic bombs. The one they dropped on Hiroshima was called Little Boy. And the other atomic bomb they dropped was called Fat Man. 
The Fat Man was made with plutonium-239, which is even more dangerous material than uranium. The city of Hiroshima was bombed on August 6, 1945, at about 8.15 a.m. Hiroshima was bombed by a 9,700-pound atomic bomb called Little Boy. Hiroshima was bombed to bring World War II to a quick end. Roughly 70,000 to 138,000 people died. Some survivors say the flash of the bomb came with a rush of heat and was followed by a huge pressure wave and the loud sound of the explosion. After another city called Nagasaki was bombed, Japan surrendered to America. The Nagasaki bombing occurred on August 9, 1945, three days after the bombing of Hiroshima. The bomb was called Fat Man and it weighed 10,000 pounds. 50,000 buildings when hit by Fat Man were fully or partially destroyed and it killed 40,000 people on impact. Many innocent people died, including children and women. So, two days later, the Japanese emperor Hirohito declared that they were surrendering to the Allies. That was the end of the war. That's Therese Rand Bridges' fifth grade class at Alvarado Elementary teaching us about World War II. Learning about war is difficult. It's painful to think about the level of death and destruction that war leads to. Those who lost their lives in World War II were just like you and me. They were people with friends and families. Like Anne Frank, they had their own passions and dreams but we study and remember history to learn from those moments and work together to make sure that they never happen again. We just have time for one more song for you today. Here's We'll Meet Again by Vera Lynn. Thanks so much for tuning into the Children's Hour. I'm Katie Stone, and we'll catch you next time. We'll meet again Don't know where Don't know where But I know we'll meet again Some sunny day Keep smiling through Just like you always do Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds Far away So will you please say hello To the folks that I know Tell them I won't be long They'll be happy to know That as you saw me go I was singing this song We meet again Don't know where Don't know when, 
some sunny day. Produced by the Children's Hour Incorporated, a New Mexico nonprofit. Our show was written by Katie Stone with lots of help from all of us on the kids' crew. You can find photos, links, learn along guides, and more about us at childrenshour.org. Thanks so much to the kids at Alvarado Elementary School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The Children's Hour had production help this week from Rodrigo Cuenca and me, Christina Stella. Find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or go to our patreon.com slash the children's hour. Or ask your smart speaker to play the children's hour podcast. We post our photos and more on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Find us at TCH Radio. Our theme music was written by C.K. Barlow. The Children's Hour is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and by the Pacifica Radio Network. Thanks for listening to the Children's Hour, Kids Public Radio. 